like to introduce the science, policy, technology, and economics of climate change, past, present, and future. Unlike the other sessions, this will be interactive and have different components. It'll go until five o'clock, and it will include a couple presentations at the beginning, which will help create some context. Um, then we will move into a discussion with a panel of experts. Then we will have uh, a short break. Then we will resume at your table. So during that short break, I will come to each of your tables to identify who's going to be serving as this table talk facilitator. But during that time, there will be an opportunity um, for each of you to talk amongst your group in response to what you've been hearing at the panel. And then we will be collecting some questions and feedback, which will then come back up to the panel for continued discussions ending at five. But now I'd like to introduce Mark Bowling, who's going to be serving both as a presenter and a facilitator and moderator for this session. And he will be introducing the other panelists. Mark Bowling is the founder and CEO of 2C Energy, the Houston-based effort to provide low-carbon energy solutions to meet the dual challenges of climate change and economic growth. And there's a full bio on him in the, the back of your program, as well as all of the other presenters. So please join me in welcoming Mark and the rest of our presenters. Thank you. Is everybody here be okay? indicated uh, maybe a little bit different format is uh, we're going to, I'm, I'm going to give a quick presentation, kind of set the stage and ask who's going to come up and kind of give us the latest and greatest on the science, uh, updates and things like that. And then what we're going to do is have more of an interactive dialogue with our experts. We have set the front end here as a panel of experts and it's just really important science, policy, technology, and economics, so it's a lot to cover, uh, but we've got the experts to do it. And so, uh, so we're going to do that, and then we'll have a little bit of a break, and then the thing that I haven't done before, but it sounds like a really heck of a good idea to me, is we really get the audience engaged by, you know, listening to what we have to say and say, you know what, Mark Bowling told that, he said the same thing I've heard from everybody else, and I, nobody's answered this question, and I want to have that answer. Or he said something that makes me think uh, of a different way. And then so we have more of an uh, interesting dialogue. So, so uh, that's, that's what that's going to be all about. And I guess I'm supposed to, you know, I'm supposed to introduce everybody here. Uh, I'm not going to give all your, you know, accolades and stuff like that. Um, just not Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, they're great people. Take my word for it. Uh, Jim Blackburn right here. Jim, raise your hand. Hopefully you get your hand down here. Uh, is a co-director of the Severe Storm Prediction Education Evacuation from Disaster. Boy, I'd like to have him on my side. Uh, at, at Rice University. Uh, then we have me, and I'm just Terry Yakin. Uh, then Astrid Thomas. Astrid's right over here at the, at the end. She's senior climate scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Uh, and then sitting right, right in front of me uh, is Maha Haji. PhD, research affiliate at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, folks, that's right. Uh, and then right next to her, Amy Myers Jaffe. Amy 
is the David M. Rubenstein Senior Fellow for Energy in the Environment and Director of the Program on Energy Security and Climate Change at the Council on Foreign Relations. Said that on one breath. She is smart person, so you're going to find that out here soon. And then Michael Skelly on the far side there. Michael is Senior Advisor of Renewable Energy and Sustainability at Lazard. Uh, he's much more than that as well. He's got a energy is a subject goes way back and he is in my opinion uh, uh, quite a um, pioneer uh, especially in, in a lot of trying to figure out the things that a lot of people don't think about is okay if we have all this wind energy over here how are we going to get it from generation to below you know those are things that people don't think about that we did and, and uh, we learned from so let's take a real quick look at my slides up here um, who's on the first one uh, and this is just going to be a very general kind of a framing the issue at a, at a 64,000 foot level, but I think it's important uh, because a lot of people you'll hear that a lot of people will say, well, we can't, we can't do without this, we can't do without that, we, you know, we've got to have energy. That's absolutely true, we have to have energy. Now we're trying to figure out between now and when it's too late what that energy is going to be. But here you can see this is just a plot of economic growth and how the economic growth really took off, uh, you know, started in 1880, but it really took off as uh, the first industrial revolution, uh, steam engine and the coal, ob coal obviously was uh, critical to that, and then the automobile, and so uh, that was very critical to economic growth, and then we have electricity. So if you add to this, this is kind of how the evolution of U.S. energy is in the United States. You have from 1800, and actually even before that, but 1800, something that's got a higher energy density than wood. And since the United States was left with a lot of uh, coal resources, we started creating wood. And, and it really took off. And then, of course, uh, uh, Ford uh, has his automobile out there. Uh, believe it or not, I, and I really, I'm not going to tell what the Ford Motor City story is because that's kind of over the top. Uh, but uh, I understand that when he was was don't, don't be afraid of that being a bridge fuel. What you ought to say is, well, but is there life on the other side of the bridge? And that is up to the natural gas industry. And what I was trying to get them to say is, look, if we can figure out how to harness energy from this, like fuel cells and things like that, without putting CO2 in the air, we have a lot of energy. If we don't, we're dead and it's our fault. Um, so, so anyways, the other thing you'll 
that level off. And this is from the uh, EIA, I don't know about here. Uh, and what they're showing is, is between this and the economic growth slide on the previous one, there's always been this deep connection between energy use and economic growth. And this audience is Thank you. 
so we lead to the next what I call is the low carbon transition disconnect. And what is a disconnect between the one that uh, our friends at IEA and others uh, organizations and others that have been working towards a level of food energy and what we'll actually do. And the first one is the fossil fuel ban and structural disconnect. is not 
the one you would want to use when you're trying to figure out how many of these oil and gas assets are going to be produced and what ones aren't. Because like it or not, we are going to have oil and gas in our life and we're going to run out of it. But it should be optimized. The fossil fuels, the use of those fossil fuels should be optimized both economically and both in terms of the amount of carbon that they produce. And so we need to do that and we need to be a little more realistic about it. Assessing climate change risk, that has something to do really with a, a big one right here. And that is a, a lot of uh, uh, oil and gas companies are consistent in uh, making full disclosure uh, about their risk of climate change. And there's, again, the statement about that is, oh, that's just all in the, the future. Don't worry about that. Uh, we, you know, our, our reserves will supply it in what, six or seven years. And then you know, 10 years from now, then we'll, we'll go back to the best ever. Well, that's just not true. It is to extent. I mean, yeah, climate change itself may be a tragedy in the horizon, as uh, Mark Twain uh, called it. But climate change risk is different from climate change. And that's something I'm It's the transition risk. It's the risk that people will face. Hence the risk I just said a minute ago that oil companies are now more competitive than oil and gas. That's the kind of thing that um, I think that the assessment is going to be put up front by Mark Twain. So thank you. Okay. Uh, and so what, what does this show us? I, I, I just put this up a transition point. Uh, I think a lot of people believe
start having really nice dispensers and things in here. I love moving into every district uh, or any district that I haven't had the chance to visit or any of them or have me. Um, I like to always start by getting something out of the way and the people, you know, saying, hey, look, number one, climate change is happening right now. Number two, yes, it's us, smoking carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, burning fossil fuels. And number three, yes, there is something we can do about it. So it's not a long time. With that one out of the way,
versus Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, people were fighting to see that they should be talking about human rights. But that's just not acceptable, not only in the United States, but globally. So where are we now? At the current rate, we would reach 1.5 degrees between 2030 and 2050, depending on found that the emissions that are right now in the atmosphere will not take us to 1.5. That means if we stop all emissions right now, we wouldn't reach 1.5 for quite a long period. So we obviously do need to introduce and eventually stop emissions so that we can reach the point which is 1.5 or greater. It's a long shot. the difference between a 1.5 and a 2 degree world, and uh, this is just one of the most, uh, I find at least the, the most informative uh, figures that this account put together for us. Um, we are currently there at 1 degree, so that bar across the thick one, that's 1 degree. means those systems and those are more at risk. So right now, we have warm water corals uh, at very significant risk. We have small-scale low-latitude fishes. We have the Arctic coastal flood. They are all monitored. Others are low to moderate to corals. Others are low. But look at what happens when you get to the extreme tri-zone. And the yellow and the orange uh, show the consequences of this. And then you get to two degrees. changes are primarily ecological. Activities and habitats continuously strengthen, no doubt about it. But the impacts of climate change are already being felt across the country and climate threats are manifesting physical, social, and economic well-being of climate. This is the main message that we need to get across today, that climate change is not a concern just for people in Brazil. The impacts we're seeing will only Thank you. 
Let's start close to home uh, here in Texas. Uh, in 1999, Gov- then Governor Bush signed some really important legislation to deregulate the electricity market and just say that uh, we would get a small percentage of our energy from renewable sources. And that sort of kicked off the wind of oil in Texas.
not to sound super old for the millennial that we live, but I've been doing this stuff for about 20 years, and the turbines that are being installed today have 10 times the swept area of turbines of like 20 years ago. Another way to think about that, and this is what it is in terms of folks might understand, is a modern wind turbine of a 130-meter rotor, which would be very big, as you guys have probably seen them floating around the highway, steady breeze, there is around 250 tons of air moving through the plane of the rotor every single second. And if you can harness that energy, that is a lot of power. And um, so the cost of wind and solar is now right on top of everybody who's been following from Henry Hub. That's where natural gas is at around, bouncing around today. And uh, wind and solar unsubsidized in good resource areas is right around 10%. So the, the cost to generate kilowatt hour is roughly in line with the cost to burn uh, an equivalent amount of gas to make the entire chain move. And, and we see that with auctions uh, in the United States where people go out and say, hey, I'm going to buy power. exciting stuff happening uh, in terms of costs. And nationally, uh, just to, to wrap up, we're, we're at about 7%. Uh, wind and solar in the U.S. will be about 15% uh, in the mid 2020s. Um, we have a long ways to go. And uh, some uh, jurisdictions sort of the state of play today, and um, um, I'm sure we'll be talking more about this continuing. We, we sure will. Uh, I'm going to go to Maha next. Uh, before I do that, I want to just kind of, because it's still uh, fresh in my mind, just briefly mention, based on just what wind has done since 2010, and all these numbers from 2010, the cost of wind has sitting here, and Michael would have given that in 2010, his talk would have been totally different. Now I want to go to Maha and just say, all right, in terms of technology, where do you see, do you have any particular technology, and if the technology is one to five years out, five to ten years out, ten to twenty years out, that are going to be, you know, the next wind and solar sort of thing, and then the follow-up to that is what aspect of technology are really 
order to help some of these problems associated with intermittency and being able to integrate all of this intermittently in solar in the uh, planning phase. <coughs> so in terms of technology, I think um, there's a whole host of opportunities and innovations that we are pursuing in this direction. I think that the United States is probably the second largest source of economic growth in the world, which means it's an area that we're supposed to not be dominating in the first There's a really impactful quote from uh, Dean uh, Stephen Gaines at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and he suggests that if we continue to produce meat for our protein needs, we're going to add the equivalent emissions of another United States. But if instead we can ship to shellfish, we're going to add the emissions of another Texas. So even shifting uh, the way we get our food and our protein from the oceans could have a huge impact on our energy consumption. So I think that might be uh, what you might start seeing Especially in Texas, if we can start to engage in uh, big energy 
been here for so long because their expertise in the ocean environment could really help us move forward quickly on this question to meet even more of our, our population's needs, given that you know over 40% of the U.S. population lives on the West Coast. Uh, Jim, I want to go to you next, and, and we've talked uh, about state of play, renewable energy, and where the technologies are, and how we've taken a cruise for the five, ten years, what are the what are the, the, the high-tech solutions coming in? One thing that I find very interesting, a lot of work that you're uh, doing uh, here locally and, and around the country is what about Mother Nature, the eco-tech, so to speak, uh, where uh, natural forces, the ecology, if we as, as a, a group uh, see things maybe a little differently, we can figure out how to use those. How, how do those fit into the climate strategy? Well, I think nature-based solutions are part of the answer, and I think that it's kind of, it, it's interesting, we really look to technology more than we ever look to nature, but if you go back to some of the morning presentations, uh, so much of the, the spiritual aspects, you know, have to do with ties back to nature, and nature-based solutions can work. Uh, trees take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, turn it into wood. Wood used for construction gets preserved. You bring new trees in, and you can have a way of renewable sun for removing carbon dioxide. Um, it turns out that the marshes are also wonderful uh, for spreading. Blue carbon has been widely recognized for a long time. Uh, as sea level rises, we're going to have a need to expand the marshes and look, and I think there is a great potential for expanding the capacity of our marsh systems to absorb carbon. But perhaps most importantly is the prairie system. Uh, we have destroyed most of the native prairie within the United States, and native prairie have root systems of 15 feet deep. Uh, they're massive root systems. Some of them are somewhat deeper than that, but most of it's at least six feet deep. It's a massive carbon storage system that over time has the potential, I think, to sequester a, a one or two ton per acre per year. We've probably got a, a billion acres States that is used in various forms of rangeland and open open lands that could be restored as native prairies, and we could have an incredible carbon system. Uh, if you did a billion tons, a billion acres of a ton an acre, uh, you're talking about what twenty percent of the United States carbon footprint. So I mean, I think that uh, if you think in those terms, you begin to think about an economy that's tied much more back to the natural carbon footprint and to the earth. investment for these types of things. It's hard to set systems up to make them work. Uh, that's sort of the creative side that we're working on over at Rice and with some of the nonprofit organizations. And if we think something like this may be perfectly suited to red states. Uh, you know, technology is suited to red states, but I think something like this where farmers and ranchers become carbon farmers and perhaps begin to make money off of, uh, frankly, a type of agriculture that is sustainable in the long run. So I think there's great prospects for nature in, in lots of different forms. Great. Thank you so much, Jim. Um, Amy, uh, you have a view, a global view of these issues. And 
since this is a global problem, uh, what do you tell us in terms of um, your work? What are the successes and the failures? What have you learned? And what do you think uh, the, you know, the next 5, 10, 15 years has, has to offer?
Before we hit the break, uh, I'm gonna just be again. We're gonna do a lightning round, okay? And and it's uh, the headline in our uh, science, technology, policy, and economics. So I'm gonna ask each one of you, starting here, so you are the first one. Out of all those categories of things, what do you think would move the needle? Absolutely. I, 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 policy, we need we need policy. 
very good policies to incentives for renewables to use their environments to move this thing away from coal. And we need equitable policies so that nobody is left behind. So the, the innovations, the technologies are needed, but they have to go hand in hand with the equitable policies. Otherwise, some people are going to move ahead and some people are going to be left behind. And I think those are the when you say equitable policies, you mean trying to um, have a just transition and protect folks that are going to be more harmed by it? Just transition is just one of the things, and it's, it's nobody knows what just transition is. It's like when, when they are going to move from one type of economy or so that nobody's left behind. Or this is just one interpretation. But equitable policies, for instance, inside the United States, you have to have pre-disaster to have adapt climate adaptation plans that are geared towards the communities that need it the most, not the ones that didn't because they had it coming. We're tired of seeing that. So we need to have everybody on board, and we need people to do this thinking about that. And we need the technologies, and we want the investment in that kind of technology. Jim? I'm choosing economics. I've, I've been fighting on the Texas coast for years now, and I'm standing in line to do the legislation. And the one thing I have understood is if, if the companies believe that money is involved in what's happening, they're very much likely. And I love what uh, Amy was saying about making the personal out there. It's going to hurt to me as a corporation. Uh, it's going to be profit-driven and bottom-line driven. And if we can figure out ways to change those bottom lines, I think that will make a huge difference. And I think consumers are a key. I think how we vote with our money will actually be where we will end up. And I'm, I'm somewhat surprised that we haven't seen a much larger kind of organized consumer effort in this regard, whether it's buying carbon-neutral products, whether it's uh, you know insisting on carbon-neutral cities and places like that. But I think you're going to begin to see the needle shift toward the basically a, a, an economy that is going to be geared toward carbon neutrality. And the more that the oil companies perceive that money is associated with that, the more I think we'll start seeing this happen. So I don't think anything else is really going to make all that much difference uh, unless it's something that really massively changes the way we do things. So that's what I think. Thank you, Jim. Uh -huh. uh, I would just say I think it's about metrics. And I think that there needs to be a way that we can incorporate some kind of metric for sustainability or environmental stewardship that is reflected in economics. So now it's not just the profit that we're looking at, but the harm that we're looking at. It's about the money that we're choosing as well. And so for that reason, I think policy is going to be put in that area. I'm not sure, you know, there's some talk about carbon taxes as well. I'm not, I'm not too familiar with those and how those would play out, but, you know, maybe that's one solution. Maybe there's other solutions. How can we actually monetize the effect that we're having on our country, on our people, on our population, to the point where it's now built into our currency without even having to think about it, without regulation. So in California, and then Washington State, which is not included, but in California, the Easy Pass program, um, it has an opportunity to encourage industrial companies to do things like carbon credits, like renewables, like solar power, like 
But I will wait. Um, so if I were king for a day, we would implement a tax and dividend approach. So that we had – we put a price on carbon, and then everybody gets that pool of money back through their tax return. And we do not uh, use this giant pot of money for anything else. piece of it uh, because rich people produce more carbon than poor people do uh, and it, the distributions of the tax would be on a per capita basis rather than a income basis and we'll deal with the equity piece of that but you would not do I mean I love that AOC is bookending this argument but we've tried this experiment twice in Washington Washington State proceeds for a whole host of uh, various policy agendas and it failed twice. And you can't make that happen in Washington State without talking about what would happen in Indiana countrywide. So keep it really, really simple and deal with the equity direct through other programs if you want to, but the, the main equity piece of it would be a per capita distribution of the proceeds of the tax return back to the Very good. Really, your fault because you started this segment with uh, Kelly Grace. You may be back in debt. Yeah, you are. I think we were since we had a longer break earlier. Um, I want to take a moment if one wanted to stop and adjourn the segment. What we'd like to do now is we're going to um, have conversations around the tables. Um, so we need to identify one person in each of your tables that's going to serve as a facilitator. As I'm coming around with cards, you can identify who that person will be. So you guys can decide among your groups. Um, and then you guys are just going to reflect on, on the discussion. And then as a group, you're going to be um, generating a question uh, and comment. You guys are going to have about 20 minutes. And then within that, we'll have 10 minutes for a break right before we resume. Okay. Uh, we got a lot of great, great questions. Um, negative thing is I know there's no way in the world we're going to be able to get through all of them. Okay, first question. What I'm going to do is just um, I'm going to ask the question and hopefully I will get it right and I, I read it properly and then I'm, I'm just going to open this up and I'm telling this to everybody including my uh, group of experts here. Um, you guys just jump in and uh, if you say, oh, I, I don't think I agree with that and, and then we'll uh, just take it from there. Now, if you recognize your question and we are not getting it quite right or it triggers a follow-up, I see no reason why you guys would be raising this 
Okay, so we want to make sure that we get through as many questions as possible, so we'll try to keep our answers relatively brief, uh, but we also want them to, uh, to be on point. Okay, so the first question, and I'm doing this one because you gave it to me, uh, is do you believe we will be able to develop the technology to save us? Yes. Okay, next question. <laughs> Anybody want I got I mean I can say one thing. And and this is it's not something that's absolutely positive. The problem with new technologies and innovation is a lot of times for a big change to occur, it needs to be a great leap. And when we are talking about climate change, a great leap means which is what we don't need. So we have to try, as I mentioned, with policies, with incentives, try to get new technologies developed because and we are going to need new technologies for carbon storage. We're going to need new technologies to remove carbon from the atmosphere. All those things are necessary for us to reach that net zero by 2050. But I believe we, we have the potential to have all those technologies and they can work very well, but we don't have the will yet. So to get that will is not easy. Uh, let me just add, uh, with Harvey hitting, uh, post-Harvey we've had more public discussion about climate change in this part of the world than I have heard in probably the 10 or 15 years since we've done it. To back up Admiral's point, the disasters will lead to, I think, lead to the discussion, and I think out of that will come the perception Let me, uh, I'm going to move to a, another question, but before I do that, I want to say that because uh, I, I really like this question, and, and I believe, yes, I, I truly believe the answer is absolutely, emphatically, yes. Now, in order uh, to, we've got, but we've got to equate policy with possibility. We don't have that right now. There are a lot of policies out there, I mean, a lot of possibilities. We've got a lot of technology. Who would have ever thought in 2010 that we would be bidding in India and other places at two and a half cent per kilowatt hour for wind. Nobody would have, and, I, and if you said I predicted it, I'd call you a liar. Um, so what other innovations are out there? Uh, what other things? They're there, but we have to have the policies in place that are gonna generate and get that kind of innovative thinking. That, that and I'm not just, I mean, I wanna make it just about Americans because it is a global issue but Americans have shown the ability to innovate and drive change and get things done when the right, uh, uh, the right policies and stuff are in place. And so I believe that's, that's the case. Next question, as an individual, what are the top three action items we can follow or do when we leave this conference? Good question. Good question. Top three things that we can do in the audience that, that will, again, I, I assume to move the needle, to do something about this. Let's get going. Michael, you look like you're fidgeting over well, there. Well, Amy said we can't take any more questions on it, so that's that's number one. So if you, if you plan on taking new you better turn to the person sitting next to you and get a ride from them. <laughs> or the person sitting next to you, just get a ride from them. That's 
that's that's the best we can pull it off. Um, I think it's um, how many people were at the Def Back talk on Wednesday? I am so glad to hear that because my fear when you come to something like this and there's a couple hundred people in the room talking about important issues that those same hundred people were at the last thing that you were at and the thing before that and the thing before that. So it's fantastic that there was an overlap. But um, what uh, Jeff Speck, who wrote, literally wrote the book called Walkable City, was talking about was the transportation choices that we're making in Houston, Texas. And basically in Houston, the, our pl the planning entity for the city of Houston is the Texas Department of Transportation. They basically plan and have planned for the last 50 years how this city will grow and evolve. And they do so um, pretty much however, that well, however they please, uh, Blackburn's efforts notwithstanding, because he's been fighting them for decades. Um, and I think if we want to, if you look at sort of, and, and I've done this with various companies, we always thought like, okay, how can we put this into practice in terms of lowering our uh, carbon emissions as a company. And uh, because we were working around the country, it was hard to deal with the jet fuel thing. But then if you thought about the office operations, what you always came back to was not do you recycle paper or cans or have uh, CFLs or whatever. It's always about how do, how do people get around in the city. And we make infrastructure decisions in the city and we pay absolutely no heed to carbon emissions. And we have, as a city, the highest carbon emissions, among the very highest carbon emissions per capita, because we have a, a planning entity that really, really loves to build highways. And that means that we have a broadly diverse city. So we should all be involved in uh, weighing in on the transportation infrastructure in Houston, because infrastructure is absolutely deterministic in the carbon footprint of how we live our daily lives. How do we do that? Come see me after the, and I will get you all mixed up in this. But okay. there are groups that w are working on this. Uh, there's a transportation equi equity group called Link Houston. You should check them out. Uh, Bike Houston is doing uh, fantastic work in this area. Uh, Metro has a long range plan. We have a lot more civic infrastructure on some of these topics than we had even a decade ago. And uh, some of it is, is for the reasons that, that Jim pointed out. Um, but there are, there's actually more ways to get involved than, than you might think. Okay, I'm gonna do something very dangerous. I'm gonna try and hybridize some questions. Um, but it's because each one is, is very good, but they all piece them together. So bear with me. <coughs> we reach out and involve people in rural areas whose livelihood depends on fossil fuel industry? Uh, how can we as a society go from a growth economy to a sustainable one in terms of consumers and companies, et cetera? And then how can we frame solutions to climate change as an opportunity to demonstrate American exceptionalism? And why I, I, think, I think all of these have some connections is that we had a brief conversation up here at this table about um, the uh, 
keep it in the ground, divest, reinvest and that sort of thing. Don't you think that's the right thing to do to just say, I'm not going to invest in these, et cetera? Um, I mean, I've got personal view of that, and I, if you have any insurance, you wouldn't want to do that. I don't know of any further away than the tomato throwing business. But I, I do believe it, it makes sense in terms of, of, of looking out and saying what we've been doing. This problem is not an early – I mean, this problem has been here for a long time. And so if we continue to go in the same direction we've gone since um, the first UNFCC was signed in, what, 92 or something, um, we'll never get there. So and, – and, and the reaching out to the people in the rural community – people that will give you a visceral reaction to um, climate change stems not from the fact that they love the earth any less than you do. It stems from the fact that they are emotionally concerned about their own livelihood, their family, and change in general. And so we need to figure out how, yes, do we engage? Absolutely we have to engage. And I don't think we vilify neither oil and gas industry, although there are companies and boardrooms that deserve to be vilified, I don't think you do it as an industry. It doesn't advance the ball at all. Um, I think we have to see beyond that. And, and like Amy was saying, personalize it. Now, maybe we have to use the economic arguments to do it. But you want to engage people on a personal level, not a uh, this is this industry versus renewables, this is Republican versus Democrat. We're all Americans, and we have families, and we want our children to have a world that's worth living in, and we want their children's children to have a world worth living in. And the only way we're going to be able to get there from here is to have some kind of dialogue. So I'm going to open up to the folks uh, here, the experts, and ask them, is there a way we can uh, either frame the solutions, frame the – what do you think about how we change the – whole narrative around this as opposed to, and I'm not talking now about technology, we're not talking about uh, necessarily um, you know, what, what kind of policies are, we're talking about mindsets, we're talking about changing people's mindset so that they don't either they're not defensive about the whole issue uh, or they, they just you know, take positions that um, don't get us where we need to be.
for these rural communities, for anybody, if you're going to come from outside and talk about something that does not relate to their values, they shut down. Totally shut down. So to each person, to each value, there is a different conversation. The people who want to keep their livelihoods in rural areas, you, you, you got to talk to them in a way that starts with, Five years ago, we're not open to hearing about climate change. But now, all they talk about is climate change because climate change is not a human crisis. It's their crisis. It's getting their land back and their livelihood. It's getting the Chesapeake Bay warmer because the fishing is not being affected. It's getting the, the oysters are not as, as abundant as they used to be. So there's this whole thing about values and, and how there's a difference between core values, which we all had growing up, going to schools and churches and our parents, and non-core values. And this belief in climate change is not a core value. So it can't be changed. It can be changed if you appeal to the real values of the people and you talk in, in, in a way that really com connects to, makes sense to them. It's kind of a trap there, but Next question. Um, I'm going to combine two. Um, at the federal level, we have not had any energy policy uh, that addresses supply and demand and advances energy security. Uh, I believe I got that table last week. Uh, transitioning from a carbon intensive economy to a low carbon economy is the op is the uh, is this the opportune time to formulate a energy policy that takes equity into account. I suppose you could argue the tail onto that is if you if you want to get specific on the policy solution. Follow-up question is, if a carbon tax is the solution, which this particular table thinks it is, uh, what will it take for the U.S. Congress to pass this sort of law?
military center. They're talking about building walls and making buffers and other other means of right, which is just ridiculous. Okay, so we really have to demand, I think, in the political spectrum when we're debating that these immediate things that you're going to be able to get funding. So in Florida, you know, maybe that funding has to go to the student union leaders, right? Because that's going to reduce flooding instead of having to come through pumps to pump the water out of my home, right? Like we have to think about what are the smarter ways of spending this money. Now we're not going to just solve the problem in the next six months, but we're, we're, we're building something for 20 years from now instead of the last 10 years. change is a Chinese hoax, okay? And the other uh, term that you hear out of the administration is this notion of energy dominance. And I kind of like putting those two together because if indeed this is a Chinese hoax, uh, I think we should play along because So, and it, as part of that, they're spending, it, 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 it's, it's, it's an interesting point, but if you look at the U.S. and our endowment of, of natural resources, in terms of wind resources, solar resources, which are really the two dominant forms of, of renewable energy, um, and the fact that most land is held privately in the United States, that, that actually helps with of capital, that combination of factors, and you overlay that with the natural resources that we have, uh, including, by the way, low carbon gas, uh, at least in the, in, the, in the grid future, we are better positioned than any other country in the world to dominate in this Chinese hoax world because we have all the, we have all the ingredients. I mean, you're hard-pressed to think of another country in the world that has these resources. I mean, Mexico has a lot, at least from a, a resource perspective. Brazil does. Um, nowhere in Europe do you have this combination of, of certainly the resources and, and some of the other things as well. Um, and we, we actually have the ingredients that if there is a giant con, if this is really just a giant scam, we are extremely well positioned to win that scam. And I think if, 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 uh, uh, if we could get the, uh, the sort of highly masculine na language of energy dominance into the vocabulary and into uh, the, the 
sort of vernacular, it might have some political appeal in unlikely quarters. Yeah, I, um, every time I hear that energy dominance, two things come to mind. Number one is um, I, I, I don't think the administration really understands the laws of supply and demand and uh, in light of the way we're keep pumping this stuff out on the market right now. Um, and the second thing is I get this image of one particular person um, on Pennsylvania Avenue standing out in front of the Ford plant when they just when Henry Ford just built his plant in Highland Park in 1900 or something and just got it done ready to start building cars and here we're out the guys out in front yelling that he's now going to dominate the buggy whip manufacturing uh, industry um, that's it's about this it just doesn't make any sense um, but it works with what his political views are. I see that. It's in the uh, <laughs> I say that out loud. Uh, next question. Um, there are a handful. This is a good one. There are a handful of young people attending the symposium. just expired over here. That's what it sounded like. Um, there are a handful of young people attending the symposium. Can you speak, two, two uh, questions, can you speak to careers or skills necessary for young people to address and tackle climate change beyond engineering and law because nobody can trust a lawyer? Um, and then the follow-up is how can you get the youth more engaged from a professional standpoint. So how you get the young people more engaged and what are some of the things that young people should be looking at in terms of uh, preparing themselves uh, to go out there and, and basically do climate battle? Yes. I have one super concrete. If you know any young people who are interested in this whole field, in May, the American Wind Energy Association, we're having our annual conference here in Houston at the George R. Brown. Four days, we'll have the entire industry here. And if you know any young people who are interested in the industry, they should go uh, sneak into the conference or t parlay, you know, spend 75 or 100 bucks or whatever it is for a day pass and then go meet everybody in the industry. That's, that's a great suggestion. Well, let me throw in one other thing, which maybe sounds a little quirky when I put this out, but uh, um, I've been doing a lot of, you know, looking into behavioral economics. Does, are, are people familiar with behavioral economics and, and uh, Kahneman and, and, uh, and his cohort? I'm sorry? Yes. Um, what's really interesting is is that if, if I was, if I had to do, to do all over again in terms of, you know, my education, uh, I would focus more on the very interesting aspects of, of really how people's minds work terms of, and, and including yourself, okay, because we're, we're all perceiving animals, right? So we see things uh, with, with our own kind of personal biases and that, that sort of thing. And, and what would be interesting is, is through, uh, you know, similar analysis of behavioral economics and, and the biases that we come uh, to the table with is what particular narrative, what words work, what words don't, what's going to drive people? For example, just classic example, you say the word change and people, you know, 
change? What are you going to change? I don't like change. Don't do that. Say progress in a totally different way. And I think that at this point in time, we need to start talking about progress. This isn't just change. Uh, you look at that. Remember the, uh, the, the uh, progression of U.S. energy sources that I had up there. This is the progression of the next level for energy. And the good part about it is over the last, what, eight or nine years, we can now do it cheaper, right? And I have a hand up there, so I must have missed the point. <laughs> or you just want to shut me up. That's like, a lot of people are going to applaud for that. Go ahead. Oh, oh. Okay. I, I, anybody else want to answer that? Go for it.
understand the legal consequences that the choice that they made on the day of the robbery. And they need to be educated enough to continue these conversations uh, going forward. So I think one thing that folks can do who are maybe not necessarily interested in the engineering or the math, in addition to the arguments that you just heard from Joe, is really pushing for better education in this country and becoming those educators that we need. individuals and communities might have had for individuals of all ages, regardless of what age they are, uh, uh, can do that become collective action that will impact systems change. I, I'm a big believer in bottom-up change. People don't realize the power that they have. What all those people in Congress, they were elected by us. You know, they want to be reelected. So the movement has to start from the bottom up. You got to start doing like, and now, and now Carol is going to understand why I asked how to pronounce her last name. Carol, <laughs> Carol Burris <laughs> takes people um, to the city council every month to talk about issues. You can do that. You can go and see people, <laughs> you know, see elected officials, talk to advisory committees of the county. I don't know if they, the counties here have this. But actions that you can do, it's not just reducing carb, uh, carbon footprint, which, by the way, if everybody in the United States reduced their carbon footprint by 20% only, and that was numbers from four years ago, it would be the equivalent of closing 200 coal-fired United States. Just 20%. 20% is not that hard to achieve. So don't think that what you do doesn't make a difference because it does. It does make a difference. And we need all the help we can get to cut those emissions. So talk to your representatives. Talk to kids.
thought, go to town halls, talk to your neighbors, go to city councils, to advisory committees, and most of all, visit your elected officials. You elected them. You want to go to, can you tell me about climate change if they don't want to talk about it? You have the right to tell them. I heard about this, this, and this, and this is the science, and you can do your materials. So I think communication, you know, and, and trying to get the word out, again, I say the power of education. seeing the business case in this. everybody 
the best that the Lord's ready and not have those fears would be a huge loss of battle to go into the new ground and preach the word of God to them. So I personally think that you want to have your bedroom phones meeting with these companies. They have to keep a certain amount of slots so they can meet with the companies and, and, and really press the companies to make these investments yet. I think it's going to affect the economy. But let me tell you a true story. I met with a, a oil company here in Maine on many, the fairly high level, mainly from uh, older white men sitting in a room. And somebody, I think, made the most honest statement I heard the whole day. They, they looked at me, and I was talking to them about these earth-based solutions and things like that, and they were listening. And somebody said, well, why don't we go into first mode, you know, this very question. And one person in the room just said, you know, don't know electricity. That's not our stuff. We know pumps. We know pipes. We know how to get oil out of the ground. We know how to cook it. We know how to turn it into gasoline. And I think that was what I just detected almost this morning was this fear and the concept of the change that was implicit. You can skirt it around change and get it done, but I think change is the most difficult thing involved in a lot of this. And don't underestimate how much fear fits into this whole equation. This is fear about the very existence of the industry. There's a fear about what Ford was about 50% of the jobs in Houston, and that's a very real fear. So I'm going to take sort of a contrarian view here. Um, what we're talking about is capital allocation, and um, oil and gas companies know how to allocate capital um, to get to punch holes in the ground and get what they're good at, as, as Jim mentioned, and um, that's what they ought to do, in, in, in my humble opinion, and um, if people, if, if you don't want to invest in that, then you shouldn't invest in that, and actually a mass defection of capital from oil and gas will increase their cost of capital and make things generally more difficult for them. But the scale, the skill set from uh, from the oil and gas industry vis-a-vis -vis the renewable energy industry is very, very different. Electric grid is vastly different from petrograd. The scale of renewable energy projects they're much smaller than big projects. There's a there's a possible intersection with offshore, okay, because some of those skills are are similar operating in offshore environments. But the scale of onshore projects is just vastly different. And if oil and gas companies determine uh, through uh, public policy, tax on carbon, whatever, their business becomes less attractive, their reserves become less uh, valuable, they're going to dividend out that money. That money will find its way back into the capital markets, and the capital markets will efficiently allocate it to other better uses because we've got good public policy around energy. And so I just don't get the uh, skill, the overlap in skill set. Go ahead, Amy. I'm going to totally disagree with that as a person who taught in the engineering department at, at schools like the University of Texas in Ice. You train people to be innovative, and they go out and they work in factories. So I'm going to tell you the story about Pioneer Natural Resources, if you don't know their record, one of the most successful companies in the world. Texas, they are 
We're going to give everyone here an opportunity for a quick closing comment. I, I, I would real real quickly on, on this particular point. I heard Mike and I had a conversation about it today. A book, uh, many books, a Peter Drucker book. And uh, how many people know Peter Drucker? Okay, God, God the man of God, businessman of God. And he said the first thing about growing a company is you got to realize that is you got to abandon something else. He called it purpose abandonment. itself this question, am I an oil and gas company or am I an energy company? If I'm an oil and gas company, then fine, be that, but today's another. If I'm an energy company, how quickly, this is just my opinion, how quickly can I move from being a commodity-based to a service-based provider of low-carbon energy solutions? In my opinion, those are the ones that are going to come out on top in the future, those that are neutral as far as the energy, but they provide low-carbon energy solutions, including energy efficiency and product development. And then we need to start driving new policies and allow people to make money off of getting people to use their energy more efficiently. Okay, Astrid, let's start with you. Maybe some just closing thoughts of anything, uh, and then we'll be done. Try to affect change.
us. We need that, and we need all of you and more. So recruit some more people also. Don't do it alone. Just recruit some more people, and let's get this done. Thank you. Uh, I would say going forward, um, I think thinking of this with kindness, we uh, include everybody. Um, I think that we can set it up with to be kind of a, a very blame-oriented discussion system that seemed like a good system at the time, and now there's issues. We've got to work our way through them. Uh, it's a human dilemma, and we, we're, we're humans, and we're there. And I think it's something that we can all solve together, but I just don't like that type of, you know, because what, hey, disagreement. It's going to be honestly disagreeing about things and talking over and working through it. I think if we can do that in an honest, straightforward, and compassionate manner, super exciting and it's part of living I think is being mixed up with the central issues of one's day and this is absolutely at the central or not the central but one of the central issues uh, of our time and so it's it's incumbent it's both incumbent upon us to be mixed up in it uh, but it's also kind of exciting and bracing and interesting and makes it Join me in thanking Aaron Taylor. Thank you. 
each of you all too for your participation and your conversational questions. So now we, uh, I'm just curious if anyone's going to continue on this ride with us in person. So, please be patient. So next up is an exhibition, so you get a, a break. We are going to go look at art and have a reception and eat and talk, and um, that will be uh, starting now over at Green short walk around the corner, and then after that, we will have a film screening uh, back here at USC Press Open Collection. So we'll pick you all up. 